This episode of Off Air with Jane and Fee is brought to you by British Heart Foundation. British Heart Foundation have estimated that up to 7.6 million people are living with heart and circulatory diseases in the UK. And there is something we can all do to help fund life-saving research. And don't worry, Fee, we don't all need to run marathons to fundraise today. Over 50% of their research is funded by gifts in wills. Now, these are really vital in supporting life-saving research. It's such a remarkably positive thing we can all do and definitely something to consider if you are writing your will or thinking of updating it. With a simple act, you can support future scientific breakthroughs that could help save and improve millions of lives. British Heart Foundation offers a free will guide and free will writing services too, helping to make the process as easy as possible. To download your free will guide today and help British Heart Foundation fund life-saving research, search BHF Wills. <laughs> I like this email from Helen, um, entitled, I've had to switch you off again. Your snide remarks about the length of Rishi Sunak's trousers, who's interested? Well, well can I just say that you, that, that we just, we, we said didn't at the actually top of the talk program, about them. I said we're not going to talk about Rishi Sunak's no. trousers anymore. I think we might have been one of the few programmes that didn't yes. talk about. So Helen, you're not listening closely. So I'm sorry, and, and also because Helen Partly got because an, she turned off. annoyed because... Uh, I'd let our guest today, Ian Winwood, describe a drug dealer as a gentleman. But, Helen, he didn't mean a gentleman as in, what a lovely man with perfect manners <laughs> and a handkerchief in his top pocket. He was just saying that gentleman because he didn't want to give his name. Mm. So he wasn't uh, he wasn't kind of gilding a he lily. Wasn't, he wasn't bigging him up. No. No. So I'm sorry, Helen, you've had a very, very difficult time with us this afternoon. Yeah. And uh, God knows we have those days ourselves. Uh, so why not come back tomorrow? Well, you can't hear me. <laughs> very, very sweet of you, though. Why not come back tomorrow? She turned off. Uh, anyway, to those of you, to the three of you who are still listening, um, welcome along. No, don't say that. So no, 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 oh, no. no, because we've had our rage our figures oh, we've out. Had the ratings, that's right. Yep. And so that is the the way that we work out how many people are listening to this. Everyone gets very excited. We've whooped. Uh, and we should just own it, sister. Yeah, well, we should say, shouldn't we, um, just thank you to anybody who's bothered to listen either to the live show or to download the podcast. We honestly do appreciate it because we were um, we were a bit dubious about whether this is the right thing to do to come over here. Not dubious because we didn't like the place, but dubious about whether we would be able to deliver. So um, we've made a reasonable start, much to do, um, but um, we're delighted. So thank you all for, for making the effort to listen. I think it's an overwhelming triumph, Jane. Yes, that's what a man yes. would say. So let's, <laughs> so that's, let's stick let's with that. own it. So thank you for all of the millions of downloads of Off Air with Jane and Fee uh, available on all good platforms. Thank you. Yeah. Meanwhile, let's get back. Let's dig into some more of your horrific family holidays. <laughs> let's get back to that very, very rich seam of when life goes tits up. And that's what we specialise in here. So the family holiday thing, I mean, we may be here for a very long time because let's face it, Jane, nobody's really ever had a good intergenerational family holiday experience. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it, no. Also, Have you got the fantastic one of the person who runs a hotel? Yes. that's such a brilliant, brilliant well, different side of the story Shall we start one, with that it? one? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, this is from... Uh, we won't... No, we won't mention the name. My husband and I run a small hotel in a popular spot in Scotland and our team always greet the arrival of a large family group with some trepidation. Most trips begin with a... Now you're Scottish, you've origins. What does this mean? Most trips begin with a... I haven't got the piece of paper. Oh, sorry. Sorry, most things begin with... Uh, a stramash. Just carry on. I, can't read that. <laughs> I think that means like a, a hoolie about yeah. who's sleeping where. Most trips begin with a stramash about room allocations, who's going on which floor, who gets the sea view. Parents are often missed to find that their children have plumped for a ground floor room when they can manage the stairs perfectly well. Thank you very much. At breakfast time, crosswords are exchanged as usually the young drift in long after the agreed time. Nobody can ever keep straight who ordered what, so invariably somebody tucks into grandpa's poached egg and bacon while he He's bamboozled to find a kipper coming in his direction. We all dread the question of who's paying for what. This summer, a man we nicknamed the Shafted Uncle shuffled along to reception to say he'd just pay for his room, only for his sister to appear and pointedly state, we talked about this, strong-arming him into paying his quarter of a bill for six rooms. Initially, we all felt sorry for the uncle, seemingly subbing his entire family. But as time wore on, we sensed that maybe shafted uncle had been the freeloading uncle until this point in the trip, and his parents, siblings and in-laws had all finally had enough. Just this week, a screen-absorbed teen called, screen called his mother an ass because she asked him to go up to his room and finish packing. Last month, the mother asked us to tell her son that their taxi was waiting as he'd be annoyed with her if she did so. The one that most sticks in recent memory, though, is the father who made no effort to hide his fury at being dragged to Scotland for the wedding of his daughter's dreams. The only thing worse than a family holiday, a destination wedding. <laughs> Love the podcast, says our anonymous Scottish-based hotelier. You see, that's the thing you've got to bear in mind. Hoteliers are watching, they're listening... They're taking it all in. They see you. And they've got that really delicious, very static smile playing on Fixed. their face, haven't yep. they? Oh, yeah. All the time while it's going in. And everybody on the front desk is thinking, I'm going to email Jane and Fee with this later. <laughs> uh, Dear Jane and Fee, I listened to the email regarding the annual in-law holiday and I saw my future hurtling towards me like a giant iceberg. My mother-in-law has many and varied strengths. The ability to see situations from any perspectives other than her own is not one of them. <laughs> She's the master of the rhetorical question and I love these. Yeah. I thought we'd go to Port Merion tomorrow. Would you like that? There is only one right answer to that question. When shall we set off? About 11? Again, only one right answer. By 11am, my husband and I have usually been up for five hours with our three and two-year-olds and would be thinking about starting lunch and naps, etc. My mother-in-law, on the other hand, likes a leisurely start to the day, usually appearing at about 10am. My brother and sister-in-law, who have no children at this point, comment that when they have children, they'll have to fit in with them. As I seethe with rage, my husband, a Yorkshireman, quietly <laughs> reminds me that the holiday was free. So I simmer down. Mm. Well, I'll keep it on a gentle boil, actually. That would drive me absolutely bonkers. Uh, but I think we can all recognise somebody in those passive, aggressive oh, we questions. So, we so can. We? we so can. And I do love the idea of a currently child-free person um, assuming that their unborn child will yeah. somehow fit in with them. It won't happen, <laughs> but good luck with that. Although I think there is a big, I think there is quite a big difference between... Uh, 
older siblings, younger siblings, when they have their kids. You know, I think a lot of the work's been done by the older sibling. Yeah, you're probably right. And well, it's like, tell me about it. Isn't that always the... Oh, you're not the older sibling. No, I'm the younger sibling. And I think there's a kind of impact, actually, that the grandchildren, the first grandchildren have on grandparents that the other grandchildren... Uh, don't get, which can be sad or really heartening, depending on yes. which side swings and roundabouts you're on. Yes, yeah. Uh, my eldest child was the first grandchild on both sides of the family, and boy, did I feel the pressure. Anonymous says your piece about family holidays has brought back uncomfortable memories of a heated discussion a couple of years ago at a family meal, where other members of our extended family were getting swept up with the idea of a big family week in the sun. I was quite reluctant, so was my husband. Emotive and manipulative language, such as your parents aren't getting any younger, and they were actually there at the table, and, but the kids want to go. The idea had been floated with our young and impressionable teenagers beforehand. Our reluctance stemmed principally from our dislike of hot beach holidays, which would also be too expensive for us in high season, plus knowledge that we just wouldn't enjoy spending so much extended time with family. We love them dearly, but find spending more than a few days together grating due to different outlooks on life and just wanting to do different things. The holiday didn't happen, but we have since been made to feel like party poopers by some members of the family for not agreeing to a holiday away together. Well, I'm sorry to hear that because um, holidays <laughs> shouldn't need to be said this. They are meant to be enjoyable, although oddly, they can actually be incredibly stressful. I think particularly when children are young and when they all have because children seem to just love they love routine, actually. You get very few maverick kiddies on the whole. They like to know that the day is going to unfold much as it always does, in yeah. my experience. Oh, no, very much so. And they just have a very... Um, they, they just need things at the same time every day. Yeah. If your kid yes. has got used to, you know, having... Uh, a couple of slices of ham and cheese at 11 o'clock. Mm. It won't be because they're being difficult, you know, that they suddenly have an absolute epi at being served a, you know, pano chocolat at 12. It's just because they're really used to it and their little bodies need it. We should mention, this is an important email from S, who just says, my children are both autistic and they really struggle with breaks in routine, noise, eating in big groups and a million other things. I'm always worried when I get together with family or people with neurotypical children that they'll judge what probably looks like lax parenting to them. I don't make my kids eat at the table or eat what we're eating or I don't, and I don't make them speak to anybody in these situations. I will let them hide in their rooms with an iPad. I'm lucky in that so far, family have always been supportive once they realised why we do this. The wider world is much less supportive. There's a lot of, but if you don't make them, how will they ever learn? That drives me crazy because it's always my kids who have to learn and never the rest of the world may be learning to be more accommodating. I'm also fairly sure that if, as adults, they never want to go to a party or throw lavish dinners, nobody is going to force them to. Fair enough. Mm. Uh, can I move on to a couple of other things? And we could save that uh, one in particular, the uh, Atutala email, I think we should save to read out almost in its entirety. 
uh, tomorrow, but I think it might be too much if we detailed all of the terrible things that have happened to this poor correspondent well, she, driving around France. She's made the mistake of going abroad. <laughs> she has. You don't want to do that. As I look out the window... No, with actually, a, yes, you're doing the right thing. With a husband and some friends. Good. And I'm not sure God. they're friends by the end of the holiday, but we'll get to that tomorrow. It's brilliant. Uh, this one comes from Nicola, uh, who's very much enjoying Deadlock. Do give it a go if you haven't yet tried it. Uh, but ends her email, email saying, uh, by the way, back to the sex question. Uh, we were talking, we have talked quite a lot about sex. So the question in particular uh, would be the point we raised with Anna Richardson about whether or not people who aren't having huge amounts of really exciting and fulfilling sex might feel a little bit left out of the world at the moment. And Nicola says, here's something that wasn't discussed at the time. Two menopausal ladies mm. in a 27-year loving relationship. We're eight years apart, so we're going through it at different stages. And obviously when we both met, neither one of us had thought about the impact of this in our 50s, how wrong we were. <laughs> Love to all the pets. Uh, and that I haven't heard talked about nearly enough. So if you are um, in a, a gay relationship with a slightly younger woman, I mean, there's a possibility... Or a slightly have, older yeah, one. Well, one is going to be older, one's going to be younger. That's you true. might have 20 years of the menopause to get through. My God, I mean, that's something you really do need to factor in. Oh, I hope it's going okay. I hope so one okay. might be through it, the other might be in the foothills, and then. But we're annoying our correspondent is turned off because she was sick of hearing about the perimenopause. <laughs> well, don't worry about her; she's gone. I know, but I still care. No, that's, that's just me. She's gone. She's gone. Mm. Uh, kind regards come from Joe. Uh, dear Jane and Fia, quick one: Are you going to see Barbie? Will you wear pink? Well, I went to see Barbie last night with my daughter. We didn't wear pink, but we both really properly, properly loved it. Uh, Jane's going to see it at the weekend, so we'll have a bigger conversation about it then. But just two tiny things. The use of beach as a verb. So can beaches. What, like a whale? <laughs> no, he just... Because, you know, in Barbie land, there's always a beach scene. Yes. Where you, oh, obviously, yeah. you couldn't actually dive into well, because the water Ken's because holding a surfboard, Exactly, yeah. all of those things. So Ken has interpreted that as just beaching. It's not that he is a lifeguard or that he is a surfer. Mm. He's just beaching. That's all he does. And then the other thing that made us properly laugh out loud is when, when Ken says, when I discovered that the patriarchy wasn't just about horses, I was bored by it. <laughs> but it's full of stonkingly good lines the most amazing cast uh, and it's just so daft in places I think you'll really really love it okay well I am looking forward to it I'm really sorry Jane because yeah, I, I know have you haven't not. watched it you haven't no watched it. because no. if I can be honest I had two fillings and a smear test today and I didn't have time to get across well, I, I, I Greg still, Wallace's miracle meat I still would have squeezed in some miracle meat um, I'm surprised and a little upset so please do it tomorrow. Oh, OK, right. I will. Actually, I've just been biffed. I had, a, um, I had a sofa date to watch the final episode of Hijack tonight, but I've just been biffed. So I'll watch, uh, I'll watch him It's tonight. only 23 minutes, as I keep saying. <laughs> do you think he wished it was longer? Pam's watched it. Thank you, Pam. At least you're on message. Perhaps you should come and do the podcast with me. Um, oh, don't start being mean. No. Um, I'm gratified to receive this from Anne. Now, um, she says, you're often touching on themes around women of a certain age and on caring responsibilities. So I wanted to recommend a book for your next read-along uh, which covers these themes, and it's A Hunger by Ross Raisin. I'd also love to know if your listeners think that a man has written well about a woman. I'm certain that there aren't any follet-type boobs in this, and particularly about a woman in this set of circumstances. I do feel, says Anne, I should also own 
that Ross is my husband, who incidentally has never, ever, to my knowledge, done a burp. So Ross and I have got something in common there. Um, even though it's the other end, I wonder if he and Jane would get on well. <laughs> okay. um, what did you bond over? Well, I, no, you see, Trapped I, wind? I don't really burp either. So I think Ross and I probably do have a shared issue of trapped wind. But what I wanted to say um, was that I haven't read his book, A Hunger, but I have read one of his other books, which I absolutely love, Dan. So can you pass it on to Ross that his book about football, um, it's about a relationship between two footballers. It's rather a bold book, actually. And I think it should be, I think it would make a brilliant film. It's called A Natural. Um, I'm always amazed that it hasn't been filmed. Great book. So please pass that on to Ross. Mm. I'm very interested in the notion of um, men who write really spot-on female characters and vice versa. I think sometimes it's easy to find the female characters in male writing a little bit stereotypical, but of course we don't know whether or not the same boot fits if you're a man reading a male character written by a woman. I'd like a discussion about that, please, Jane. Should we have a lively discussion? Let's have a lively discussion. We can't discussion. have one now because I can't think what to say. <laughs> okay. No, I think, I think you might. Um, which, well... well some... Let's give it a bit of a thonk. So I th- and, and, and you're right, we should come back to it when we've definitely got more ammunition. But I think Anne Tyler, from my perspective, writes a really, really beautiful male character. And I think Elizabeth Strout writes really brilliant male characters. I think they both write brilliantly about relationships, full stop. I just think so. They happen to be heterosexual relationships they write about. Well, they do. But so one of Elizabeth Strout's books is just called Oh, William, isn't it? And it's a follow on from the books that she's written about Olive. Mm. And I find that a beautiful, beautiful rendition. Because he's died, hasn't he? Of the male spirit. But of course, I'm not a bloke. So maybe if you read that, you think that there are elements of it that are stereotypical and don't really work. But it's a really interesting conversation to have. And as ever, Jane, our listeners will know more about it than us. Yes. You're certainly right there as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) It was like being back in one of my seminars at university there. Just for a second, I just... The the lecturer, whatever it was, turned to look at you and just thought... (laughs) nothing got nothing in my locker at all here just nothing so I just gawped do you know, I did think that the other day when we were talking about uh, the book club book and Valerie Perrin we were talking about reading you know whether or not we recognized enough of the French spirit in order to really enjoy the book and we were talking about American writing and I think I asked you what the last book was that you'd read you know that was really cracking by an American of course we'd both read Barbara King Solver the winner of the Women's Prize. I Neither of us could bring that to mind. I have read it. And she not Well, I'd read Demon Copperhead, so I apologise because um, uh, I didn't manage to bring that right up to my frontal lobe. <laughs> so, our guest today is the music journalist Ian Woodward, author of Bodies, Life and Death in Music. Now, this is an extraordinary book. So, Ian has been a music journalist for a very long time. He used to write a lot for The Enemy, for The Guardian, for Kerrang! in particular. And uh, a couple of things happened to him in his life that really knocked him off course. But in his capacity as a music journalist, he had been really drawn to talking about the rock and roll lifestyle. And at times he had really indulged in some of the bad stuff in rock and roll lifestyles. So it's a book that looks uh, quite forensically sometimes about the damage that is done uh, to these beautifully creative people in plain sight. Yes, well, it's almost as though uh, there's nothing that their... Well, in fact, their minders 
cease to mind them. That that would see would seem to me. And I think Ian makes a good point in the course of the interview when he said that obviously managers are hired by the act and they can be disposed of. So they aren't really they're not around all that long and they don't risk their position by criticising the hedonistic lifestyle of the person who's bankrolling their entire mm. existence. And what Ian's talking about is a very, very well-told story, mm. isn't it, of the kind of depravity at the edges of uh, a rock and roll life. But I think what's really different about his book is that we're now looking at it from a completely different perspective where we are understanding the difficulties uh, of mental illness, when we're understanding addiction, just so many more things are better understood now than they were in the 70s, 80s and 90s. But so many people have been lost along the way. So Ian came in this afternoon and we started by asking him to start at the beginning. What drew him to music as a young boy? It was my first obsession, really. Um, and I remember when I was 11, I mean, I always liked music and me and my mum always liked music. And we'd drive around in the car when I was a child listening to, to, the, to the radio and to Elvis Costello and ABBA and whatever it might be. But I remember when I was 10 years old, um, listening to it again in the car with my mum and hearing a Motorhead song that had gate crashed the top well, not just the top 40, but almost the, but the top 10. It went in at number six. And it was like the, the, the section in um, The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to colour. It was as if my life, just the sheer... And I listened to that song last night, so this is, this is an ongoing thing. And I just could not believe the, the transformative power of it. And from that point on, it, it, was, it was my thing. And it's really remained my thing. Um, I guess the second part of that answer is that when I was 14, that's when I decided I'd like, I, I never really wanted to be a musician, but I thought I can, I, I, I'm quite good at English, maybe I can write about it. And I was started to discover music magazines. Mm. So it's been a long time, it's been a long time coming, yeah. to, to be honest. Uh, your mum was always hugely supportive, wasn't she? She's Recklessly lovely, so, yeah. you might say. Oh, no, I thought, <laughs> I thought in a rather lovely way, actually, because she just said, yeah, if you can do it, then you're going to do it. Oh, she did, she did to that, yeah, when I was a teenager. I used to have a job um, sorting out paper rounds for the paper boys and girls which involved me starting work at about five o'clock. But my mum would still allow me to travel to London. I, my teenage years were spent in, in Buckinghamshire, which isn't that close to London. And she'd pick me up at the train station at Milton Keynes sort of at half past midnight when I'd been to see some sketchy punk band in some life-threatening environment. Uh, and I'm not quite sure. And she was incredibly supportive and I really owe it all to her. It's just as well social services didn't get involved, I think, because it was it was a, it was a liberal approach to parenting, for which I remain very grateful. Yeah. Uh, so let's make a leap from that kind of magical allure of music mm. into the very, very dark excesses of it, because the book is as much about your own journey through music and what it did to your mental health as it is about people in bands who might have suffered too. Can you take us to the very worst of places where perhaps you thought, mm, not entirely sure I'm going to make it through? Uh, do you mean? Uh, do you do you mean when you say can I take? Do you mean take you now? Or? Yes. Can you describe it? As yeah. You describe I mean, it I mean, book? it was it was the uh, even after uh, the book's been out a, a little while now, and I still find it quite difficult to describe. And and the idea of writing just a, a memoir 
It just struck me as being too easy. And the idea of writing a book about the music industry struck me as a bit dry. So I thought I'd put the two together, which sort of makes me laugh now because it was so beyond my technical capabilities that it, I really did become a better writer while writing the book because it took just forever to get right, to be honest. Um, the book, the personal aspect of the book hinges on uh, something that happened. I had a really bad day and my father had a particularly bad day. Uh, and the personal aspect of the book hinges on that moment. But already before then, uh, and that happened in 2011, already be before then, I was showing signs of a, a mixture of, of somewhere between sometimes just bad character and, and, and foolish decisions and weakness, really, but also at, at other times problems that were stronger than me, neuro issues of neurodiversity that I don't think I could reasonably be expected mm. to combat unaided. Yeah. Uh, but the, but what, what becomes so clear in the book is that you were experiencing uh, ways of dealing with all of that that were very similar to some of the ways that the musicians that you were talking to were dealing with their stuff, which was booze, it was drugs, yeah. and it was bad behaviour. Yeah, very much so. And 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 I make the point that uh, the the music industry the music industry makes its practitioners ill. Of, of that, um, I, I think I, pr I provide a pretty compelling case as to why that might be. But I don't work in the music industry, so it's not. I work in the publishing industry, so it's not quite correct to say that that happened to me but what it did do Fee is it gave me so many places to hide and it was only when my behavior was so become it become so self-destructive and so ridiculously foolish that even the industry itself those who knew me within it started to panic and you know you're really giving it some welly when that starts to happen when you become an outlier in an industry that, that is, you know, famous and indeed celebrates that kind of behaviour. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it gave me... It was great camouflage, great and terrible camouflage for me. And who were you going to see and who was in your kind of circle? Place us in the musical context. Do you mean in terms of the bands? Yeah. Or, yeah, well, so I, I, I wrote... I mean, I now write for, for broadsheet newspapers, but at, at the time and I wrote for... And they were sort of going back 20 years now. Most of the action... A lot of the action, not most of it, a lot of the action takes place this century, but sort of... Be from the beginning of this century up until about 2015, the music journalist aspect of it. And it was a different world. People ask me if I think things are getting better or worse. And it's difficult to answer that question because the jobs change so much. It used to be that I'd go on the road for a couple of days with uh, Gr Green Day. So I wrote for a magazine called Kerrang, which is about, which covers loud music, anything that's loud. So I'd go on the road with Green Day or I'd, I'd, I'd interview, spend a couple of days with Muse. These, I'm using the more famous examples here. Or go to New York and interview the Beastie Boys or the White Stripes at the, at the studio. And I would, and it was in those situations that I would see and hear things that didn't necessarily make the pieces that I was writing, but lodged in my head of, of just sort of how destructive the world could be to so many of the people because they were just being worked to such a ridiculous degree. 
and and that doesn't happen anymore. I've done three interviews this week and all of them have taken place on Zoom, which allows me no avenues to kind of see the cracks. I'm not sure I could, you know, my, my certainly from the pandemic onwards, the, the, the way that music journalism is practised, I don't think a book... I, I don't think I certainly could write a book like I have because I just don't see that stuff mm. anymore, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. I mean, when you're talking about having, uh, you know, seen people uh, who were just quite unwell and really being facilitated by whether it's the label or the manager or the PR or mm. whoever it is around them... Um, did you ever see somebody stepping in and saying, actually, this is just rubbish, you know, we need to just get a grip of somebody? Did you do witness an intervention? No, ever? and the question is, I'm not sure who would have done that because the structures are just so weird. So you're a performer, Fee, in a, in a, in a successful band, um, and I'm your manager, but you can sack me, so I have to be careful what I say to you because I don't want to upset you. And the chain of command is just so very, very confused. There's a story in the in the book of, of, a, of, a, of a young musician, and this is, troubles me because it's he's very young, he's sort of early 20s, who, um, who, who, who was placed in a psychiatric care institution after becoming convinced that... Uh, that the church was involved in 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 culling large sections of society, and he and he attempted to burn down a church, and was arrested and and placed in psychiatric care. And he suspected, and 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 the group's managers suspected that the group's record company would use that as a selling point. And I could pretend to be horrified by this, but. If I went to an editor and said, this is what happens, that's an angle. So I think we all, and by we, I mean myself included, the book notwithstanding, but certainly I've written about death and destruction as a compelling subject. I hope I've done so responsibly. But I've written about death and destruction for years and years and years. My ears will prick up at it and editors' ears will prick up at it and perhaps at the furthest logical conclusion, the reader's ears mm. and, and eyes will pick up on it too. Yeah, so do you ever look back on some of the stuff that you wrote uh, and think, actually, I was part of that celebration of something that was actually just disturbing? I'm not sure I did. I'm not sure I, I'm, I, I'm not sure I could swear to it in a court of law, but I, I've always written about it sort of without shying away but I don't think I've ever been quite gullible enough to pretend to myself or to whoever might be reading the pieces and I don't know who they are so I'm the reader that this is where this is great fun because the the the, the human toll is 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 clearly too high yeah so I'm not sure I did that to be honest I could well be proved wrong but I like to tell myself that I, I didn't I didn't fall for that at any point. One of the things that's remarkable about the book, Ian, is just the the detail that you go into about the kind of things that you've seen and the people that you hung out with. And I'm not picking on Primal Scream here at all because there are numerous examples in the book. Mm. But I was reading a bit about your experiences with Primal Scream. And, and basically, that was a band who... Did you get to know them better or got more respect from them because you also really knew their drug dealer? And... I, I, knew, I knew, yeah, I, I actually lived with the, the drug dealer for, for a short period of time who also happened to be 
their road manager had been their road manager in the past. I, I've I've anonymized his 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 name. I'm not anonymized. What's the word I'm looking for? I've changed You've his changed name. You've changed it. Yeah, changed. Yeah. Uh, and I was I was on a, co- a coach with them. They'd been up all night. For anyone that your listeners that don't know, Primal Scream are famously hedonistic band i mean how they're still trucking i do i honestly do not know um and um and i was on a coach with them and it's the worst possible situation because you plunked on a coach with a band and you've got to sort of try and get them talking and they'd they'd flown in from glasgow and they'd been up all night and they just were not interested at all and it was like this is going to be really hard work so i allow i let them know that i knew this gentleman but I only had that story from his point of view. He could have been making it up and they just sort of came to life. And one of the reasons for this purpose of this book is this, this porous line between the music industry, certainly the concert industry and the touring industry and what we might euphemistically call the black economy. And this guy, this guy was trouble. There's no doubt about it. And, 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 and he, in, a, in the end, he, he took his own life. Um, but by the time that I knew him, he was, he was dealing kilograms of cocaine. I mean, I saw, I went to, it went to the toilet one night in the house that we lived in, and there was a, ki- a kilogram of cocaine on top of the washing machine. So this was serious stuff, you know. I mean, that's sort, of, that sort of at the fringes. I'm not sure every band carries on like that, and every, every tour manager is also knows how to ship large quantities of cocaine. But that certainly happened, and that was certainly true. And they, they loved him. We're talking to the music journalist Ian Woodward, and I asked him if he thinks that artists are now better protected from excesses, or is that something we just tell ourselves to make us feel better? I would be surprised if that were the case. I mean, I, I refer the right honourable lady to the answer I gave some moments ago, which is I don't, I'm not allowed the kind of access that I had for much of the time that I write about in bodies. I don't get to go on the road with bands mm. anymore, a record company. Sure, but if you see someone like Lewis Capaldi, oh, who's yeah. one of the most recent uh, uh, young stars, to just say, I just can't do it for a while. And I'm not going to be able to perform. I think what we witnessed at Glastonbury was really... Uh, it was very moving, but it was also a bit distressing. Very much so. And I think I think the audiences, I think, are becoming great. Uh, it, it, by and large, you don't get that, well, that's not working. I, you know, whatever it may be, do a job that you don't perhaps like and you imagine that Lewis Capaldi is, is, is a life of luxury. That we seem to have left that behind. So the audiences have become increasingly literate because if if, if a band... Or an artist reaches the point where you or I know their name or, you know, the quote-unquote general public knows their name. They've already gone through hardships that I don't think you could be expected to understand. They've always already slept on floors, been ripped off, been ignored, been rejected, possibly been abused, especially for female uh, p- performers, um, been humiliated. So they're already tough for want of a better word. So if they then get to the point where you or I know their name and they say, I want to take some time out, I need to take some time out for my health, um, mental or physical, believe them. The elephant in the room, Fee, is that 
um, they're not being paid properly for their recorded music. The the the, the scandal of, of of streaming royalties is well known. It doesn't need me to, to to repeat it. But that's the elephant in the room that many people are on the road continually because they are they are required to be to keep them and their organisations afloat. Yeah. Of the artists that you've interviewed over the years, you must have experienced quite a lot of personal grief. You know, we might mourn the death of Kurt Cobain in a very different way, possibly to, you know, music journalists like yourselves who were more involved in the scene. And do you think often that if those kind of people had lived now, they could have been helped and would have been okay? Or is that just too naive a... Presumption. I don't know. I, I, naive is an unkind word. Um, I think it's perhaps an unrealistic ambition. Um, we like to think that the scene changed after the death of Kurt Cobain, and it sort of does for a while. But is there really that much difference between Kurt Cobain and Amy? What are the circumstances of Kurt Cobain and the circumstances of Amy Winehouse? I know one was suicide and one wasn't, but that sort of media frenzy. I just think that these are very, very powerful forces and I'm not sure what the answer would be would be mm. really and what about that magnetism of the industry full stop there is a certain type of creative person who is drawn to the affirmation of yeah. an audience of the darkness sometimes as well i mean there just isn't there isn't any kind of legislation or regulation for that no there? and it's difficult to imagine what it might be um but i spoke one of the, the voices in the book a, a, a psych I can never remember, psychologist, psychiatrist, psycho... And her name is Dr Charlie Howard and she was fabulous, but she she said something that I quote in the book that has been rattling around my head ever since she said it, which is that the creative mind is a, is a vulnerable mind. Ian Winwood was our guest this afternoon and the book is called Bodies, Life and Death in Music. It did come out a couple of years ago, but there is a new edition in paperback uh, which contains a final additional chapter talking about the death of Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins. Yeah. Uh, that was very sad, wasn't it? He was, gosh, he was so gifted, that drummer. I mean, I wasn't a massive Foo Fighters fan, but they were quite regulars at Glastonbury, weren't they, the Foo Fighters? And you always were quite drawn to watching the drummer because he just seemed to be so astonishingly adept. Yeah, and just um, beautiful really, as well. Yeah, it's, really, it's very, very sad. But you're right, it's a, it's a self-destructive old world, yeah. it would seem. So we've had some interesting guests this week, haven't we? Yesterday was uh, Sir Nicholas Mostyn, who was a very recently retired... High Court judge. Monday, we talked to TV presenter Anna Richardson all yeah. about, God, all about everything. That was actually. a very frank interview, so yeah. if you missed that, make sure you hear it. And tomorrow, the young feminist activist and uh, writer, Gina Martin, and she was the person responsible for making upskirting a crime. So uh, she's got uh, lots to talk about. It'd be interesting to see what she thinks of the whole mate thing, which is a recent initiative on London public transport by the mayor. Although I know increasingly people are saying mayor. Do you, mayor? Do, do you get that? The London mayor. No, yeah. I say London mayor. Well, I do, because we're both right. <laughs> of course But, but some people say mayor. Mayor. Well, they, they must stop. Just stop. OK. Jane and Fee at Time Stop Radio is our email address. We love hearing from you. Tomorrow, as well, on the podcast, we will decide what the book club book is and uh, we will set a date by which you must have read it and had really important thoughts. Must have read it. Must, Jane. Don't do a Garvey skim read. Must have read it. M
must must have read it. Yeah, I'm writing um, it down. Hopefully, uh, you won't uh, find it so boring that you stop <laughs> through this time. <laughs> Do you have a very nice time. We'll speak to you tomorrow. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, lady. A lady listener? I'm sorry. <laughs>